we think our digital assets are the second uh, pass that a buyer might make, but today they're the first pass. Today, if you're pitching an idea, whatever the pitch format is, and there's a package or whatever you want to provide your buyer to, to look at, that's got to be really, really good. Welcome to Outside Sales Talk, where we meet with industry experts to learn the strategies and tactics that make them successful. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and I've helped thousands of salespeople all over the world crush their quota. Today, I'll help you crush yours. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, I have Ann Loudon with me, and we're going to talk about seven tips for salespeople from a fundraising pro. Welcome to the show, Ann. Thank you so much, Steve. Glad to be here. So by way of introduction, Anne is a nationally recognized philanthropy consultant and relationship expert. She's raised more than $150 million for nonprofits. She's based in New York City, and her areas of focus are higher education, healthcare, and the arts. She is also the author of the upcoming book, Connection as a Superpower, How Social Courage Gives You the Edge in Life and Love. Um, really excited to have you here with us today, Anne. Um, just to jump right into it, tell me, how is raising money for nonprofits like making a sale? Thank you for asking the question, Steve. I think maybe it would be helpful for your audience for me to explain a bit about philanthropy and nonprofits. I, I don't know if you specifically have ever been involved in a nonprofit or raised money for a cause, but I have not. you have not. Okay. Well then I, I will assume that if you find that this is a clear lesson for you that your listeners will too, there are at least in New York city, about 33,000 nonprofits, which are, organizations whose mission it is to raise money for a particular cause or concern. And, and in the world of nonprofits, there are people just like salespeople that have a title that you probably will never know either, have never heard of, called development. So if you're a member of a development staff, you are essentially the sales force for the nonprofit in interpreting the mission and reaching donors and making the ask and then being that relationship expert for the people who are contributing to your cause. So we don't have, we nonprofits don't have necessarily something tangible that you can touch and buy, but when we ask people to make a gift, they're making an investment and there is a monetary, for the most part, they're in-kind gifts, but if there's a monetary commitment that has to be secured in much the same way that you would for selling a product and there are steps to take, which I'll tell you in just a minute. But in general, you do have a buyer who's the donor. You do have a salesperson who's the development officer. And you do also have something to be sold. And in this case, it's an intangible. It may be an idea. It may be a program, but it's something you can't touch. I can't show you the jar of tomato sauce, but I can tell you about it. Uh, and you also have something else that I know everybody in sales is is introduced to at the very beginning of whatever their their work is, and that's a quota. So you do have a goal to hit. You do have numbers, and and you have budgets, and so you and you have a sales force. So 
in, in many ways, there are similarities in the process and the terminology may be different. The vocabulary that you use when you talk about sales and ROI and the terms that you used to talk about making presentation would be slightly different. And so the words I use may need to be interpreted by you or ask me as we go along. But we, we are similar in, we are parallel in that we are introducing an idea, product or concept, we are asking for an investment in that. We're following up and we're setting up for the next sale. Fantastic. Well, that certainly sounds like a, a sales role to me. It has all the, uh, all the telltale signs. Um, so you're an expert in identifying and understanding donors. What advice would you give to salespeople when it comes to prospecting, which is uh, the similar concept in our world? And I guess you call that leads, don't you? Finding the leads, mm -hmm. yes. Um, well, so I mentioned a moment ago about vocabulary, and one of the lessons that we, those of us who've done fundraising for a longer period than those that are initiates and coming into the business, one of the things we talk a lot about is vocabulary. And there is this notion that you can say about a potential donor, you can call him a prospect. Uh, for years, I was mentored by a gentleman who was at Cornell University, who was the guru of major gift fundraising. I don't want to overly complicate this, but a principle in major gift fundraising would be asking for a gift at a certain level. Every organization would call their major gift level different or principal gift, but generally it's six figures. So you're, you're securing a gift that will take time and a process. And what my mentor used to say was never use the word prospect for uh, a potential donor because what you're saying is you're reducing that conversation to sort of being a one-time I'm, I'm looking for the gold in the creek i'm not I'm looking for the aura but i'm not developing a relationship so one of the key things that you'll hear me say over and over again is that when you begin to identify potential donors which we call prospects but don't really mean it in that way we're looking for people that care about our cause, that invest in our mission, that believe in what we're doing, that believe in the leadership of our organizations. And so if you want to relate that to your work and your industry, whoever your buyers are have to believe in the product and the value that it brings to them, whether it's cost savings. In your case, you're, you're taking, you're giving the sales force uh, staff members are on the road an opportunity to cut their time and save the company money for you know for all the all the legwork you're doing it and then they can launch what they need to do from the legwork that you've already provided for them so that's of course a value and and so we are doing the same thing we're saying we're we need to find people that believe in that value and so when we look at where the donors are the first Thing we always tell the, the new initiates in this business is it is the previous customer that's most likely the first place that you look. So we'll talk later about maintaining relationships and why that's so important. But the first place is the previous customer. The second place is those who buy similar products. So let's say in the case of philanthropy, which is the business of, of giving money and supporting nonprofit causes, you might say, well, let's, you know, take an example of, you know, someone very wealthy in your community. Oh, so-and-so has great resources. I think 
he or she might be a potential donor for this cause. Well, not really, not unless they have an interest in the cause. But let's say you have an art museum and you're, you're raising money for the art museum. So you would look at those who have the other art museums or other museums and say, this person has an affinity for museums. And so that's why you'd think, one, the previous customer, two, someone who has an interest in the, in the, the cause or the concern that you are about. Um, and potentially three would be those who could be introduced to you who may not care about what you sell to begin with, but because there's a credible person introducing the idea of what it is that you're selling, then that's your introduction. So a lot of the leads, I, I know in many outside sales forces, they're pursuing cold leads, right? They're, you know, cold calling. In the case, yeah. yeah, in the case of uh, of nonprofits, in some ways you have a constituency. So, in the case of a university, as an example, you have graduates. So they're they're they become your first natural constituency because you know that they went to your university. They potentially cared about the university and had a great experience. If it's a hospital that's raising money, they have the grateful patients. They have doctors. They have others. So, in in each case, it's it is a natural lead that comes from the affinity to your organization. In your case with sales, depending upon the product, it's the previous customer, those that would be interested in whatever the product is, and those that could be introduced to you by people that already believe in your product. I mentioned a minute ago, there are, you know, there are four steps in, in, in making the sale or, or securing the gift. And the first is the identification stage. A lot of people get stuck in this. Uh, they, get, they get stuck in, oh, I've got to know every single thing there is to know about this potential donor before I'll go see them. You know, I need, I, I, I will do the aim, 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 but never fire. You know, I'm going to go figure out every stock holding they have, every piece of real estate, everybody they know, who the influencers are for them, and I won't go see them until. But what you learn on the call, which, which we'll talk about again in more detail, what you learn when you make the ask is information that is soft information that you can't find doing research most likely. I mean, you, you know, you might know what their needs are in your case. You might know what their previous sales have been. You might know what the company intends to do, or what they want to do, but you, there may be some piece of information that you can only glean from being in person. And so we say, well, there's donor research and there's donor identification, but the, the next step is the cultivation of the donor. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly the parallel for you. I don't know how many visits it takes to make the sale for those that are doing outside sales. But we often talk about raising money as saying, you first know who you're going to, you go to, go to them and try to determine what their motivation might be for supporting you. And then the third, it may not be literally the third, but the next visit where you make the ask, you're doing it armed with the information of what their needs are. And so that's the third, that's the third step, the ask. And then the fourth is the, is the follow-up step. So I, I, you know, I hope that, that everybody can think through, you can't make a sale if you don't have the right information about the person that you're selling to, the organization that you're selling to, the company they're selling to. And gathering that information is done in different ways by different organizations. You know, a small sales force would be the information gatherers they would also be uh, the the those that would be making the sale and those would be doing the follow-up in other organizations it's it's stratified in different ways absolutely and 
what would you say, what are some tips that salespeople can apply from nonprofits and fundraising to better engage with their customers? One of the best ways to engage is to know that motivation, if you can determine it, that is really the decision-making piece for the for the donor or the buyer. And once you know that motivation, you can you can identify what it is that makes that person get interested in your cause. And I'll give you an example from higher education. Uh, there was a, a donor that had been very generous for a number of years who decided for whatever reasons, unknown to the staff who were building this relationship with him, that he would quit supporting on an annual basis the university. And so the staff person was dispatched to go see that donor and figure out what the problem was. And it had been four or five years since the donor had made a substantial gift. And when the person got there, what was not clear in the conversation initially was whether this donor was angry or whether they were detached or whether they were just uninformed, but there needed to be a recultivation, a chance to re-engage the donor. And so through a series of questions to determine what that donor's motivation interest really is or was, that then the next step, the ask, could be set up properly. In this case, the donor had a child that had applied to the university and had been denied. And the, the donor felt like because of the long history of the relationship with the university, there should have at least been some consideration for the child. If not, if the child wasn't admissible, then, then the child couldn't, couldn't be successful at the university. But the donor felt like he should have gotten a prior call to let him know that his child was not going to be admitted. And it took two meetings to get that information revealed, the donor felt the university should know. She should just know, this is my child. I've been generous to you. You rejected the child. There's separate arms, of course, that make the decisions. The admissions office is the, is the office that screens potential students, and the development office is the office that secures the gifts. But at any rate, that cultivation, that figuring out what it was and being able to have that conversation open the way for a future gift. So for your outside sales force, knowing the customer, spending enough time with them, and of course this hard hard now because of the fact that everything's digital and everything is, we're disconnected in a significant way from building those relationships. But in this process, figuring out what the relationship is, knowing that the that the customer is going to like you, you know, you are representing the company. You may be the only person as the outside salesperson that, that this buyer ever knows of the company. And if you're not memorable and if you're not interesting, and if you're not invested in making this relationship, both personal and professional, I'm not saying that the buyer has to be a best friend, but they're, they have to like you. They have to relate to you at some level because if they don't, it's part of buying, even though we're talking about budget cuts and all the things that relate to decisions up the chain that happen when we're in this pandemic period, but part of buying is emotional. Part of buying is a, is a, it's a logical decision, it's a practical decision, it's a need-based decision, but there's, there's also this part about who's coming with the ask and what do I think about that person and how do I react to them that really does change the end decision can change the end game. Absolutely. So what, what would you say in terms of um, 
in terms of digital interactions with prospects. We've talked a lot about face-to-face interactions, and it sounds like um, the raise, fundraising, at least at the at the higher end, is definitely an outside sales role. Um, what about how do you uh, interact with your customers on a digital level, even though sometimes you interact with them in, in person? What are your What are your thoughts about engaging with prospects digitally? Well, today, of course, um, however long we're going to be locked down, and I know California is still like New York uh, in a way. We're, we're probably the last two states to open up, I guess, in the in a significant way. But what what's happening now is we're replacing zoom meetings we're, we're with the in-person we're replacing conversations by text and sometimes by phone with the in-person ways and so our digital assets need to be top-notch they need to be really good how many times do we refer people to a website or we give them a link and an email to look at and there's there's it's not up to date there's something about it that's inaccurate and we think our digital assets are the second uh, pass that a buyer might make, but today they're the first pass. Today, if you're pitching an idea, whatever the pitch format is, and there's a package or whatever you want to provide your buyer to, to look at, that's got to be really, really good. I know on some of your previous podcasts that I've listened to, there's been an emphasis about video and using effective video that can both address the motivation of the buyer to buy and the company's credibility and the value of the product is essential and clever video. We I've been interested to see how commercials have pivoted in this time. Those that are making commercials are doing a fantastic job of addressing the emotional part of what's going on today. And that's the digital assets being current and being, um, thoughtful, provocative, entertaining, all of that's got to be considered because that's the way we're selling today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's super important right now to have a, have a great footprint with your, with your digital presence. Um, It's been shown study after study, buyers are interacting with your brand and, and your product a lot before they even talk to a salesperson. So it's, it's really important to have that, uh, that type of information be really tight. And I, and I encourage salespeople to work with their marketing team who may be uh, you know, a few steps removed from the actual customer. I encourage them to kind of reach across the aisle and, uh, and, and work together on some of this stuff and make sure the messaging is, is really tight because that's the impressions that your prospects will have once you start talking to you or once, once you start talking to them and they're in in the engagement process starts, um, they've already made a lot of their decision. What about actually asking for the sale? What about, um, closing the deal? How, How is, how, what, what perspectives do you have, you know, as someone who's raised tons of funds from people, how, what, what is that? How, how, what advice do you have there for closing? There are two parts of closing a nonprofit gift that might be a bit different from the outside salesperson's selling a product, but let's see if there's similarity that strikes you. The first is that testimonials from others who've bought, in other words, other donors who have made a significant gift to a cause that you're now trying, you as the as the seller, the development person is trying to pitch, uh, are really much better 
sold when you have someone else who says, I did this, I bought this, and this is what I got for it. And the case of philanthropy at the highest levels, often it's not just the staff person who goes and makes that call. They bring someone along. So in the case of a, of a, hundred thousand dollar a million dollar gift request that's done in person it would be the person who's asking for the gift and the the volunteer the board chair a trustee of the institution whoever it is and those two together are able to go in and each has a different role the person that's the additional volunteer would be someone who would be providing the testimonial, would be talking about the value of the gift, be talking about the impact of the gift, and the other person would be making the ask. And that call, if there are two people, needs to be scripted in advance, needs to be rehearsed in advance. How many times do sales calls happen when there are two people, a trainee and a manager or whatever the combination, the pairing might be. And nobody's talked about what's going to happen in the call other than go get them. We're going to get in there and get the sale. But is there any planning uh, of, in advance of who's going to say what and what's going to happen if we get this objection and what's the response going to be and who's going to take that side? If it's one person, obviously, that one person is carrying the water. But in making that ask, it's important to, if you don't have another person with you, don't have the luxury of that, to be carrying testimonials, to be in testimonials of a peer, in the case of, of a buyer, another company that's similar that's also bought your service or bought your product and is vouched for you or can even even in advance of the call uh, represent how wonderful this values that you're going to add any extra additional person that can be weighing in on this ask would be helpful the second part that i would say is the tactic of the call and that is once the ask is made once the request is made You've literally thrown, if you imagine having a holding a beach ball, and the beach ball is the is the vehicle of communication for the ask. And so you as the as the person who's pitching the idea, holding it, and when you you make the ask, you toss it visually, virtually, to the person that is going to be making the buying decision. What happens so often is that people get nervous and they walk all over their own ask. They may make a very effective, uh, tightly constructed, pivotal kind of request, and then they say, but if you can't do that, what about this? Or maybe we can bargain with this, or we can now in the age of discount conversations that are going on with the pandemic, there's some back and forth for sure. But the person who speaks first uh, after that ask is made, is and always should be the buyer, or in this case, always should be the donor. So I, you know, I can't necessarily relate to being on the in a straight sales call. I'm selling a product, and I'm saying, "Would you buy a hundred thousand units of whatever this is?" But you, no matter what it is, whether it's tangible or intangible, you want to give the person who has been asked the question the chance to answer it and to yeah. rehearse that if you can. Yeah, and I think it's very applicable, all this stuff. I mean, what, what you're saying really resonates with me. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 always, I always coach salespeople to make sure that you have expressed the, the benefit that the prospect will receive should they purchase your product or service or should they give to your cause in this case. Um, 
and, and make sure they understand, I will get this, these are the things that, these are the benefits I will receive, and here's what they are worth to me. And if you've done that, and the value is greater than the cost, then to a large degree, um, assuming they trust you and everything else, that, uh, and, they're not, and assuming they're not gonna do something else that's even better, um, to a large degree, your sale is, will close itself. Exactly. Um, you know, if they truly can walk into their boss's office and say, hey, I wanna, you know, I think we should apply, you know, this much money towards this project, or can I get this much budget for this? Because we, we will receive this value from, from, from doing this project. Here's what we have to put into it. Here's what we're gonna, here's what it costs. But look at the size of this value, and I believe it. We, here's our analysis on it. If they can do that, you're, you're gonna get the sale. Sales people spend a lot of time in training, learning what it is that they're selling, all the features of that product or that item. And sometimes they resort in a sales call, or in the case of philanthropy too, talking about the features, not the benefits. The features are easy fallback. They're the boring presentation that's part of the package, but they're not the bigger discussion. So an example from, um, from philanthropy, let's say that, that a family wants to establish an endowment which is a permanent fund to be like a savings account that would fund a scholarship and every year the income from that savings account would be funneled to a deserving student so if i were going to talk about the features of the scholarship i would say well we're going to ask you for a hundred thousand dollars and we're going to spend five percent of that in perpetuity, the scholarship's gonna bear your name. Oh, those are all features. This is how the selection committee is gonna work. These are the criteria for the scholarship, uh, for the kind of scholarship this is gonna be. But I still haven't said one thing about the advantage of wh why would I want to endow a permanent scholarship? Why I, as the donor, who's it gonna benefit? How's it gonna benefit them? And if I have a story to tell about a student that's been a scholarship recipient and has gone on to escape difficult challenges in their own lives and gotten a degree and taken that degree and done something magnificent with it in their lives, that's the story. But I would need a name, I would need a description as much as I could paint a picture, tell a story, because the storytelling part of the ask is the emotional piece I talked about earlier. It's the thing that grabs you. Uh, it's, it's, it's the piece that makes you realize that the person that's bearing or bringing the request to you is someone you really like, and so you're predisposed to listen hard and think think about the yes and how do I get to the yes and if it's told in a way that resonates with me that's meaningful to me as the buyer then you're right the sales probably already almost done sometimes buyers need things that sellers don't even have to sell I'm sure you can think of example I'll give you a personal one um, from my own life recently and that is I decided to avoid struggles for my family at some future date, I hope it's a long future date, to buy a um, cremation policy. So I, I, I didn't even need to know what the features of that were. I basically understand the idea. I, I know what the benefits are. So when I was in touch with the salesperson, they were reviewing the features. I didn't care. I didn't really you know, it didn't matter to me. I didn't need to know there was going to be a wood box versus a, whatever those things are. You know, I, I really wanted to know that I was doing something that was useful. I was spending some some money that was, you know, something that 
is it inexpensive to be able to solve a problem? And what I wanted to hear from the salesperson, which she did say was, you're going to be saving your family so much anxiety and grief at a time that will be difficult. And I will have pre-planned and done something that, that makes me feel a lot less stress and considering that's part of my estate plans. So that's a product that at this time in particular doesn't really even need selling. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think depending on the product, depending on the service, every customer goes through a different decision-making process. How do you think uh, as a salesperson or as a fundraiser, someone should adapt their, adapt their sales process and adapt themselves to their customer's unique decision-making process? It's such a great question. And, and there are two things that I would say immediately. One is that even in that sales call, you are best at it if you're adapting your style to the style of the person that you're selling to. So that's everything from body language to picking up verbal cues uh, to listening well to making sure that whatever you come in with the pitch, you have an idea of what you want to say, but there could be something you learn in that, in that call that requires you to adapt, requires you to change the way you ask the question or to be able to switch gears and, and understand there's a motivation there you knew nothing about, or there's a piece of new information that you've got to take back to the home office and figure out how to implement or integrate into the request. So we absolutely, if we're cookie cutter, about anything that we do, then we're not being genuine. You know, the, the need to be authentic in a sales call is directly linked to the ability to secure the sale. And so in, in every way you're going to adapt. We, um, back in, uh, in my Texas days, um, when I was in university there, we hired a, uh, a gentleman who had come from the Pentagon, so he had a military background, and we were bringing him into the sales force, if you will, for the fundraising team for the university. And so I was taking him out on some calls to introduce him to key players that had significant resources and ability to contribute. In fact, they'd already done that, so it was more of an introduction to the field and making sure that he knew what he was, who, who were going to be the key people on the territory. And so we had a full day of events planned and every i noticed at the very beginning at the at the breakfast meeting at the 10 o'clock meeting at the lunch meeting at the two o'clock meeting every single time he was asked a question whether we were sitting in a coffee shop or an office or you know over a meal or whatever he would slap his chest with his with his right hand so you'd say well what's the enrollment of the university today and he would slap his chest and then he would provide an answer and it was it was certainly uncomfortable for me noticing it, but I imagined uncomfortable for the people listening. And so at the end of the day, as we were driving back to the campus, I said, please tell me, I noticed this, what, what were you doing? Because it was confusing both as a symbol of the conversation, but also it, it seemed to be a pattern. And he said, you know, when I was in the, at the Pentagon, I, I carried a, five by seven card in my inside suit pocket and had the answers of every to every question that I knew I was going to be asked most likely because I'd been there so long and I knew the drill and I don't have any of those answers and I kept that was my my default I kept thinking if I it hit my chest it was where the 
card should be, but it wasn't there and I didn't have it in my pocket and I didn't know the answers and I was not prepared. It was just this really funny moment. It made me realize that what we, we really should be doing is setting up mock sales calls and videotaping people in situations they were unprepared for. So that was a lot of the sales training that we put our team through. And it, it's amazing what you can see that you do on a video call, everything from tapping your feet to, to, you know, to doing something strange with, you know, what might rub a mysterious piece of lint off your shoulder or whatever, but it, all of it's distracting. And so the ability to be able to, to be fully present in that call is something you have to learn to do. Not everybody's good at it. Absolutely. It's a key sales skill. Um, so we've talked about, uh, kind of how to, how to adapt to your customer's decision-making process. We've talked about the sales process again, uh, a bit. What, what about what should salespeople do after a deal is closed? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, keep the relationship growing? How do you set yourself up for successful in the future? How do you, uh, I've heard how you worded this earlier, but you, how do you change something from being a one-time thing to a, to a, a stream of donations. Right. Well, so the transactional piece is when you go ask for the gift, you get the gift, they get a gift receipt, uh, they might get a perfunctory letter from you, and then you don't do anything until a, a year later when you want the next gift. And that's absolutely the biggest mistake of all, because when people have invested in you, particularly in a cause in, a, in the nonprofit world, invested in you because you're the person representing it and in the mission, what they want to know is how's it going? What's, what, what difference did my gift make? What's, what are, what's other news that might be happening that would keep me feeling great about the mission of this organization? And how could, maybe I need to do something in the middle of the year. Maybe there's another buying as in giving opportunity that's not an annual one. And so how do I find out about that? So there, the need for the quota, which we talked about earlier, this, you know, there's so many calls to make. There's so many people to get to know. But again, the, your best potential buyers are the people that have bought from you before and found value. So you have to literally plot and plan a strategy that would allow you to stay in their lives, stay in their business, stay in their head between ask one and ask 30, whatever it is. In the world of fundraising, there is a strategy, a technique that's called moves management, M-O-V-E-S management. And it's the process of taking someone from a prospective donor all the way to a principal gift donor, provided they have the resources and the interest. But it's the way in which you get from step one to step four. And it involves actually calendaring what you're going to do to bring that potential donor along with you and helping them understand what the mission is, what the cause is. It may be that I calendar, I'm going to be in touch by phone in a month. I'm going to be inviting this person to an event on campus. I'm going to be introducing this person to someone else, it, whatever it is. But it, there, there is a planned process that, that happens because you can't let it fall in the cracks because if you do your chances of being able to succeed in the second sale and the third and the fourth and the 30th is lessened so moves management sounds a bit um as if it's um 
too transactional in terms of me describing the process, but it's, it's sort of like thinking about uh, friendship. So if you have a friend, you met somebody that you, that you have, you know, been around since grade school, whatever, you know this person and you re see them 20 years later and there's been nothing in the interim. Um, can you sustain that friendship? We often say, oh, I, you know, it's like we were never apart, whatever it is. But if you had had a strategy in which you'd kept up with them in a better way, whether you, you know, whether you each agree to do it or whether it was just your initiative, it doesn't matter, but you would have a more solid relationship because you had built that consistently through the years, even if you weren't in the same place. There's a wonderful book that was written years ago by um, a man who became sort of the, the leader, the unofficial leader of the nonprofit fundraising movement. And it's called Designs for Fundraising. It's got these phenomenal, just logical tips for what people should do. But his name is Harold Seymour. And what, what he said was that between gift one and gift two, there should be seven thank yous seven and whatever form it is seven touch points seven ways to make sure that that donor knows that they were not missed that they were thought of that they were part of the inner circle it's really the difference between believe, believing that you belong with this organization or you don't you're just there when you're needed so that's that's probably the best way I can explain it to you is that this idea of engaging has to be planned and you have to think about it and it has to be personalized and but if you can do it you can really benefit from those relationships going forward and as I said earlier you know they may become personal friendships too yeah and these relationships are so important and the the genuine connection and interaction that you have with your, your prospects and customers, especially after they become customers, I think is so important to um, understanding what their needs are and therefore better serving their needs. What thoughts do you have for our audience on, on, on how you can nurture that genuine connection and relationship with your donors or customers in this case? Well, the best answer is to be empathetic, to understand what their needs are, and to genuinely enjoy them. It's, it's very difficult to service a sale or keep a relationship going if you don't enjoy the person that you're dealing with, and that it becomes something you have to do, not something that you love to do. I suspect most people get into sales because they well, it could be a variety of reasons. You tell me, Steve, but I, I think it's it's the fun of it, the challenge of it, the meeting the quota, the trying to beat yourself after year one to year two. But they also, I'm hoping, as people that are in my profession, really genuinely enjoy people. And they really genuinely enjoy building those relationships because the advantage as I'm writing about in this book that you mentioned earlier is when you are a connector and you are somebody that nurtures and sustains relationships, the benefits that come back to you, you, you can't even plan for them, but they're there. And the benefits that come to the other person are there. And so it's really a style. It's a work style. It's an attitude about being hopeful about friendships. Well, I'd like to jump into the next section of our show today, which is called sales in 60 seconds. Um, quick questions, quick answers. So first question, what's the biggest mistake people make when they're trying to close a sale? That they are so focused on the process of the sale that it feels inauthentic. 
that they they have the statements that they're going to make, the responses to the objections to the sale, and that it all feels very much like it's formulaic. And they don't, they don't vary from the formula. Absolutely. What's the most important thing salespeople need to know about their prospects? What their needs are, their motivation for wanting to buy. They need to understand that so that they can then make the pitch, make the ask in the direction of that motivation. Rather than making this, again, the formulaic, I've got this presentation I'm going to make, but it doesn't relate to what the people that are buying want to hear. What's the number one tip salespeople should learn from nonprofits to improve their networking? Well, this is stated a little differently than what I just said, but this idea of being an authentic representation, a representative rather, for your company. You believe in it, you believe in the product uh, that you're selling, and you believe in the value that that product's going to offer. And you, you really mean it. You're not just trying to hit a number, but you've, you sincerely like it, and maybe you own it, or maybe you, you, know, maybe you have the testimonial to offer. You're the paid you know, you're the paid person, so it's a lot better if that testimonial can come from others, but it's certainly advantageous if you like the thing that you're selling. And tell me, what's a skill that all salespeople should master in order to succeed? Listening without anticipating what the answer is going to be. And that's, that's back to the idea of we can learn something if we're paying attention and if we are, we have that script in our head and we we know the person's going to say this and we're going to say that and the next person's going to say the next thing and we've got the answer for it. We can't pivot. We can't, as you say, tailor the conversation for that specific situation. What is the one non-sales related book that every salesperson should read? Well, can I cheat and give you two? Sure. Uh, okay. One is a book that I just came across called uh, The Secret Sauce for human connection it's gratitude and pasta and it's written by chris shimbra it's s-c-h-e-m-b-r-a chris is a, a writer for usa today and he's done this year three year long study of what it means to be grateful and he began it because he was in a state of difficulty himself and going through depression and he didn't know how to get out of this terrible a place that he was in in his head and so he started making pasta sauce and then he began inviting people over for dinner that he didn't know and now he's doing dinners weekly their zoom meetings their zoom dinners but you're put together you're thrown together with a group of anywhere from 20 to 30 people all over the world that you don't know and he writes about this in his book what these dinners are and the idea that the greatest way we can build connection is to be grateful is to be appreciative is in that it could be appreciative for the sale. It could be appreciative for a friendship. It could be appreciative for someone doing something for you, but it's a wonderful idea of how to step outside yourself. And if you're grateful for the relationships that you develop in sales, then you're going to have a good chance of sustaining those relationships. So that's number one. The second book is called the power of who W H O and it's by Bob Bodine. It's B E A U D I N E. Uh, Bob is an is executive search and he places athletics administrators, football coaches. He does both uh, college and professional um, athletic directors and others. And he wrote this book about how we ought to be able to identify the 12 people in our lives 
that can make a difference for us and we can make a difference for them and cultivate those relationships. And he, and he talks about creating your own personal board of directors. So you think of the people that in your life that could, they could be mentors, they could be friends, but they're going to give you the hard advice that you need to hear when nobody else who works for you or who maybe is a family member is going to give to you. They're going to give you that feedback that you need. It's a really interesting idea that you have the power of who you have, who are the people in your life, those 12 people, those 12 who. So I hope, you know, both of those books, I, I really think have been beneficial to me. They, they both sound fantastic. Um, and, it, and it's great to get a different perspective. A lot of times we have sales thought leaders on here, a lot of whom have written their own book, but it's, it's great to, to, uh, to bring in an outside perspective and get some, some new ideas. Um, as an actionable takeaway, what should the field salespeople who are listening today do as a first step to apply nonprofit tactics into their sales strategies? I think the, the most important way to look at this conversation that we've had is thinking of the word sale as an acronym, and I'm trying to think of it as both in terms of the raising of money and also of the selling of a product. So let's say that the S is C. So that is see the value of the product, see the benefit to the buyer, in the case, in my case of the donor, and see the person of the buyer for who they are, what their motivation is. The, the A is ask. So that is to make that request in the most powerful way you can, leave the responsibility for answering that request in the hands of the buyer so that the negotiation can begin after that person responds. Um, L is lead, and that's really lead on to the next sale, lead on to the next gift by building this continuum of a relationship between the ask, the sale, and the next one. And the E is evaluate, which is to look at your own ability to be successful with the calls that you're making and the pitches that you're making. I think we get into a routine, a rut of doing things the same way all the time, not looking at our presentations, not asking somebody, let's role play, let sit with me and let me, let me ask you for this sale and you tell me what I did well and what I could have done better. So the S-A-L-E, the C, ask, lead and evaluate. Outstanding. Um, well, I'm going to try to summarize the things that you've taught us today uh, in a couple minutes for our listeners. So first, look for buyers who will understand your value when you communicate it to them. Look past buyers to find, or look to past buyers, so your, your past customers, to find more potential prospects. Referrals are so important. There are four stages to find a potential donor. So first, the identification stage, get the right information about the people that you're selling to. Second, cultivation of the donor. How many visits do you need to make before you can make the sale? How many times do you need to talk and speak with them and connect with them to convey value? The ask, asking for the sale. And then fourth, the follow-up, following up from that sale. In order to prevent prospects or customers from going cold, work to build a really strong relationship. If they do go cold, work to understand what went wrong and communicate with them to build the relationship back again. Testimonials are very important to show prospects what they're gonna get out of your, prospect, your, your product or service. 
Ask your happy customers for testimonials to help further show the value to new prospects. Be fully present in your sales calls by practicing ahead of time. Practice being in unfamiliar sales situations and reporting yourself so that you can spot anything that um, could, uh, you could improve upon uh, ahead of a real sales call. Come up with a follow-up schedule to keep interacting with prospects and customers to build your relationship. Regularly engage with them in a personalized way so that you can even build friendships with your prospects and customers. This has been so fantastic, Anne. Um, where can le all of our listeners read more about your work? How can they reach out to you? What's, what's the best way? The best way is to go to my website and sign up on my contact form. I've also got a, a downloadable PDF there that provides the 10 attributes of a connector, which is a leadership style skill set that I talk about in the book. So my website is just www.annloudon.com. Well, this has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If anyone can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from learning about what Anne has talked about today, share the love and forward them on to them. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, for a lot of salespeople, a, a, a future career, there could be a future career in fundraising for nonprofits and universities. There's, there's, uh, there, there, there's a lot of, there, there, there's so many parallels between the skills that you develop as a salesperson that would be applicable there and vice versa. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming in. This has been Thank great. you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. And I wish you all the best success. I know that you've got to do some pivoting in this time as well too. And your, your company and your ingenuity and in creating it is very exciting. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen after we open up again. Well, thanks a lot, Anne. It's been great having you on the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.